today will begin uh, again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Today we're covering verses 4 through 6. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 through 6. I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I always thank my God for you because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus, that by him you were enriched in everything, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And may we have that wisdom and knowledge that's truly honoring and glorifying to you as we contemplate the gospel and what you've done for us in your son, Jesus Christ, we ask in his holy name. Amen. So let's go to verse 4. 1 Corinthians 1, 4. Why the Holman Christian Standard Bible, every Sunday when I preach, the reason for the choice is based on prior study of the Greek and perhaps there's a phrase or a statement that I felt needed to be brought out a certain way because of the Greek. And so that's how I make the choice. And sometimes when I get to a verse, I may switch because I didn't think it was gotten quite as well with whatever verse uh, version we're using. But let's look at this one. I always thank my God for you because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus. Now, this isn't really extraordinary. Paul begins many of his epistles thanking God for the church that he's writing to. And some of the content here is interesting, and I'll comment on that as we go along. Anyone who's read 1 Corinthians realizes that this church had a lot of problems. And there's a lot of chapters. It's going to take us a while to get through so what I'm going to do as I preach through 1 Corinthians is in a lot of the applications, I'm going to do previews. I'm going to tell you what Paul's saying here, and then later we'll see why that's an important thing, because they got it wrong later. Because it may take a few years before we get to chapter 10, 12, 15. I don't know. I'm just saying it may take a while. So I'll give you a lot of previews. So Paul thanks God for them, though the letter will contain many strong rebukes and corrections of various errors and attitudes. This is my statement. God's supernatural intervention caused Paul to stay there and keep preaching and teaching. This is one of the important points because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus. If you read the rest of the book, you think, How's he so sure of that? Because they really got a lot of things wrong. Well, let's, uh, if you want to turn here, go to Acts 18, 9 through 11. Acts 18, 9 through 11, or jot it down. I'll read it for you. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. That's upon Paul being arriving at Corinth. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. 
So that's a significant amount of time compared to how long he spent on his way there, as in Thessalonica, Berea, Athens. Now he's in Corinth. So he was there a while, and God had told him before they were even converted that he had many people there. We'll talk about that in Sunday school soon because I'm teaching in Corinthians. But the point is, Paul knew that if he preached the gospel there, those people that God had, God knows who they are, Paul doesn't, will believe. That's how we do all evangelism. We know that God has people. We don't know who they are. They don't even know they're gods. They're just serving the devil. But we need to preach the gospel. And so he had some real reason to believe that God's grace was given to these people, that his preaching wasn't in vain, that God wanted and would nurture those he'd saved. But in the meantime, so many bad things had happened. So uh, it was God, this is my statement about this, that God was the one who did a powerful work of grace in delivering them from sin pouring out his spirit upon them. God told Paul that he had many people in this city even before they were converted. Paul knew God had given saving grace. Notice that grace, God's grace given. Grace is a gift. Charis. But there were serious problems. Grace was given by God. It should not It should make us humble and grateful. If God has given saving grace, we should always be humble and grateful and never boastful. God saves sinners. God saves really bad sinners. Our status in Christ is determined by God's work of grace, not where we came from, not what we brought to the table. We were just dead. Ephesians 2 1. But God gave grace. And Paul knew that God had given them grace. So he thanks God for them. The word thank, eucharisteo, as a verb, is where we get the term Eucharist, because Paul uses it also, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, in connection with the Lord's Supper. Eucharisteo is to give thanks. It's one of the ways of saying that. When was it given? According to the tense in the Greek, at conversion. We're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. If you are saved because God has done a work of grace, you were given grace. The emphasis is on God, the giver, and grace as gift. Not how great we are. Now, as we'll see, as we go through Corinthians, they were very enamored with how great at least some of them were. And so that has to be dealt with. Let's go to verse 5a. That by him you were enriched in everything. Again, we want to emphasize God's work of grace. And so... Enriched is in a tense, aorist, passive. By the way, a lot of times these passives are divine passives, meaning by God. 
Um, and it happened at conversion. So it was by grace they were enriched when they came to Christ. In everything is literally all, and implies every kind or in every way. Whatever grace or enrichment we needed, God gave it to us in Christ. And so though the gifts that they had were abused and misused, they were God's gifts, they were given by grace, and they were given through the gospel, through the work of grace, for the benefit of God's people. Now that knowledge, that attitude that would come from that knowledge is very important. Because Christianity, at least here in America, and I'm sure elsewhere, has been mocked through the decades that I've been a Christian because of arrogant preachers on TV and elsewhere claiming that they have some great status that ordinary Christians could never hope to have. Or they know the secret that the rest of us can't know unless we buy it from them. Or that they're the great man of God or so on. That is sort of the attitude that comes across in Corinth, and we'll deal with that as we go along. So let me make a statement. What is qualitatively considered enrichment is what God gave each believer in Christ. This is relational. This is relational, meaning that we know Christ and we are his people. If you're in fellowship with other Christians, what do you know? That God saved them, that God gave them grace, that God enriched them, and that we need one another. We should always know that. Let me continue with my statement. And not due to learning the secret to riches. Are you sick of books that say the secret to? I am. Well, if it's a secret, then how'd you find it out? And why do the rest of us bumpkins never figure it out? Well, that's why you need the guy that wrote the book about the secret. And as we've said many times, there are two things that are either true or false. Either it's revealed or it's false. It's not revealed. If it's revealed, it's not a secret. If it's not revealed, the secret things belong to God, so you can't write a book about it. Well, that's simple, isn't it? That'll save you a lot of money. Continuing my statement. This means God is not speaking of something acquired by learning secrets or having extraordinary personal piety or innate aptitudes that most people lack. That's not what it's about. It's about sinners saved by grace who God chose to use despite ourselves. We don't sing the song, How Great I Am. We're supposed to sing, How Great Thou Art. Okay. Well, that'll help us understand Corinthians, because there's some problems here. So enriched is, again, in the passive, and it means by God. Let's go to the last part of this verse, 1 Corinthians 1, 5b. In all speech and all knowledge. So this is really profound if you think about the bigger context of where we're going. 
enriched in all speech and all knowledge. The word, by the way, speech there is logos. Knowledge is gnosis. That's a word we still use. And logos, as we pronounce it, is also common in the English language. comes from the Greek. But here in the context, it clearly means speech. And uh, one way to interpret that is articulate utterance. So Paul is acknowledging that God who saved the Corinthians, his people came to faith when they heard the gospel, have received grace. Paul thanks God for them. And they are enriched even in logos and gnosis. Later, they're going to be rebuked for claiming they had logos and gnosis. Why? Because what they had in mind isn't this. They had some personal piety that ordinary Christians could never have. I wrote an article once about, called uh, about pietism. I, I use that term, and I hope it catches. I think it has been. I've seen others use it the way I do. I don't know. But pietism, I define as some claim of being an extraordinary Christian. And so at the beginning of the article, I wrote this. There are no extraordinary Christians, but being an, an ordinary Christian is an extraordinary thing. The reason for that is that we want to give God the glory, not ourselves. And that God can take any sinner any blasphemer and for, save them, regenerate them, forgive their sins and make them part of the body of Christ and use them in whatever way God chooses to use each one. All are gifted. That always should give him glory. But if you look at church history, it's a history of people claiming some kind of higher status. Titles that don't even show up anywhere in the Bible, a garb that would indicate higher status, robes, crowns, archbishops, cardinals. So there makes everyone think, oh, extraordinary Christian. They may not even be a Christian. Maybe the lowliest Christian who just believes Christ has higher status than the archbishop with his gold and silver and fancy robes. If he doesn't know Christ, he has no status. He's not even part of the kingdom of God. We've got to get thinking like the Bible teaches us. God gives speech and knowledge that's different than that of the pagans. Yes, if you look at the history of the Greek world, Athens, before Paul went to Corinth, he was in Athens, and there he discussed and debated with philosophers and polytheists and so on at a place that still exists. I was there in 83. The epoch, the epo- <laughs> no, I can't even say it. Mars Hill. Acropolis. These places are still there. Amazing. How did, I was thinking as I was rereading this. Okay, they didn't have these big cranes that we do where they could put a stone here. And so, isn't it, how did they do that? Very, uh, meticulously 
But there they are, the philosophers, the wise, the people with speech and knowledge. And they see Paul and say, what's this babbler got to say? Well, he had something really great, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So do you, if you know Christ. It's greater wisdom than the wisdom of the wisest people that ever lived. So you, Corinthians, despite the problems, have been enriched by God in all speech and knowledge. True gifts of God are always gospel-centric. He, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will testify about me. That's what Jesus said in John. He didn't say he, when the Holy Spirit comes, will make you an archbishop. Or he'll testify about you. Or he'll give you a lot of money so you can have a massive cathedral with all this stuff. Gold and spires and all this stuff that looks so great. He didn't say that. He said he'll testify about me. You can have everything. And this comes up later. The agape love only comes from God, the the Son who loved us. God the Father who loved us and said his Son who demonstrated that love, who died for sin in the God, and God the Spirit who gives us the fruit of love in our hearts. First Corinthians 14. So logos, or logos, as the Greeks would pronounce it, is speech. Speech are two things that uh, were misused by the Corinthians, and we'll look at some of that later here in this sermon as we go to the applications. Now turn with me in your Bibles. I'll read it if, if you don't have one with you, but turn to 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 4. This is a preview. I'm going to do this as I go through Corinthians. I want to do previews. Because otherwise it'll take too long to get to find out why Paul's saying this now. It's valid that we have enrichment, that we have speech and knowledge and gracious gifts and we should give God the glory. But let's look at this, what Paul said about himself. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 4. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming you to you the testimony of God. Verse 2, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what he was mocked over at Athens and what he preached everywhere. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, it's the word Sophia, by the way, in the Greek, but in de- the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Verse 4, that's, my, that's what I want us to think about. So Paul is commending speech and knowledge, and he'll talk about wisdom, and power, and all of the things that they were enamored with. But the power of God is the power to save sinners, forgive sins, grant eternal life, and change the dead in Adam to the alive in Christ. First Corinthians fifteen twenty two. 
The message of God's power is the message of the cross. It's not God's man of faith and power showed up in your town. Now come to the meeting and hear about him. It's the message of the cross. This doesn't mean we don't study or we don't try to present an articulate message and do the best we can by God's grace and his power with whatever gifts he's given us and called us to, but ultimately it's to glorify God and to get the gospel clearly in the minds of the people who hear. Let's go to verse 6, 1 Corinthians 1, 6. In this way, let's stop right there, in this way that God had given grace and enriched them, confirmed that Paul preached Christ. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Let me talk about uh, the Greek and why I chose this translation. Testimony of Christ is literal. It's genitive. But it could be a subjective genitive. Testimony that comes from Christ or an objective genitive testimony about Christ. Now, the context tells us it's objective. And so that's why I chose this translation. And this testimony about Christ, which is Christ crucified, the power of the gospel, was confirmed, and then literally it says, in you, among you, and I think that's the correct translation, among you. In other words, God was at work as Paul preached the gospel. He preached Christ. He preached on the resurrection from the dead. Remember, they mocked him in Athens for preaching that. What's this babbler got to say? And so he goes to Corinth, and he preaches it there too. We'll talk about that in Sunday school. And so he preached Christ. And God was their work among them. They received grace. They were enriched. And they did have gifts. They did have wisdom. They did have knowledge. But it's relational It's for the benefit of the body of Christ, and it's gospel-centric. It's about Christ. So I want to make a statement about that. Their enrichment did not prove their personal piety or higher spiritual status, but the validity of Paul's testimony about Christ. And this testimony was the gospel itself. That's the testimony of Christ. So that God had given them grace, enriched them, changed their lives, given them gifts, proved that Christ is who Paul said he was. God the Son, the Savior, the one who died for sins once for all, the one who was dead and then raised on the third day and appeared to many witnesses, Paul will talk about that in 1 Corinthians 15 and ascended to heaven who's coming again. Let's have some applications, implications and applications. All the redeemed should be thankful to God for his gift of grace. Every last one of us who knows Christ should always be thankful. Always. And uh, I think there's certainly a danger that 
we don't stay thankful as we allow, if we allow the world, by the way, which is really bad, and the news is really bad, and sin is rampant and wicked, and it's everywhere we look, does that mean we don't need to be thankful? No, it doesn't. Because we're not thankful for the sins of the world we live in. We're thankful for the grace of God he gave us in Christ. That thankfulness has no reason to go away. Secondly, true gifts and riches honor God and the gospel. That'll help you, by the way, and I'll point this out. I'm going to try to deal with some passages that have been misused and sometimes they're confusing. I hope I can help us understand it better. And thirdly, we are called to testify about Christ, not ourselves. You want a really bad topic to preach on? Ourselves. Worst topic ever chosen. You want a great topic? Preach Christ. Let's go to Colossians 3.15. I preached through Colossians some years ago. Not that many years ago. And we covered this, but I want to look at it. And I want to, again, as we look at this verse, I want to debunk some false ideas about it. Okay? And this one's been misused so often. Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of God, or excuse me, the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now, I chose this verse because Paul also wrote Colossians, and there's an imperative here, be thankful. It's a command from God that we be thankful. But what is this peace of of Christ and what does it mean for it to rule in your hearts that's where a lot of interesting speculations happened and so let's see if we can unpack it first of all peace generally now it has a range of meanings peace the Old Testament idea was shalom which I've said before means well-being but it's peace that comes from God is applied to messianic salvation and generally means well-being and salvation because of what God has done and so when Jesus is called the prince of peace he's the prince who brings peace brings salvation and we've talked about it in other sermons so it says let the peace of Christ rule now, the word for rule, you've probably heard this, means umpire, if you want to make it literal in a certain context. And we need to find out what that means. What does it mean for the peace of Christ to rule? And I did some uh, research on the word and on the Greek. And it certainly can mean umpire. But in this context, it means hold sway. That's another part of the range of meaning. So let the peace of Christ hold sway. And I can defend that, but I'll just present it to you right here. Hold sway. Now, what about this peace of Christ? What is meant there? Many people think the peace of Christ means I feel good inside when I think about Jesus. In other words, they take it as an emotional state. I feel peaceful. But 
As a matter of fact, a lot of people that have no time for Christ feel peaceful. People go into Eastern meditation in order to achieve their version of inner peace or tranquility or serenity. But what does Paul mean? That's what matters. So I would say, in this case, Christ is the source of peace. Peace is relational, and it comes from Christ. Now, this peace is having peace with God. What does that mean? That's, by the way, Romans 5. Peace with God doesn't mean, oh, I'm happy and peaceful. It means reconciliation of former enemies. You always have to look at the context. We were enemies, and God forgave our sins and redeemed us. So let me make a statement about this. There is a common teaching that claims that peace here is inner calm or serenity, and that rule means umpire, uh, which is true in some context. And therefore... This peace is our inner guidance. Let me stop there. That's what most people think, at least as far as I've heard in my 45 years of being a Christian. So you're trying to decide what is God guiding me to do? Where is he guiding me to sell my house or to keep it or to move to another city or to stay here or to get married or stay single or to start a new business or work for somebody else, or to invest in gold and silver, or stocks. Whatever it is, whatever decision, we've heard this, you got to let the peace, you got to let peace be the umpire. So you think, I don't feel peace about buying a business. There you go, God just spoke. That is not what this means even though that's probably the most common usage. All right? So let me get back to my statement. So Christians, they say, are to make decisions based on inner impressions, decide which ones they have peace about. This is how some find their personal word from God. I wrote an article about that. Let me tell you what will be a lot easier way to live because we don't know what the voice of God sounds like what does it feel like being how lots of people who do Eastern meditation have peace and they make one decision or another what do we have that they don't better version of it no here's the categories either what we choose to do is within our Christian liberty or it's a sin either we're bound We cannot do it, or we're loosed, and we can. So those are the big categories. Are we free, or are we bound? Are we free to do this? If it's a sin, we're never free to do it. We don't get peace about going and sinning. So what about if it's within our Christian liberty? Then you are free in Christ to make your decision. Yes, we get wisdom, and wisdom from God is without recrimination. We can talk about that. But that's not what this verse means anyhow. We just need to make our decisions in God's providence whole sway, and he will actually work through us whatever we decide as we have 
various choices in front of us. So we just make our decision. But some people use this, misuse it for the personal word from God. Have you ever heard, well, I've got a hotline to heaven? The hotline to heaven. But see, I remember in the 70s when I was in a group that was constantly finding some new word from God. But after five years, this one got their word from God. That one got that word from God. And more often than not, it all blew up. It went bad. Money was thrown down a river. Projects were started that were never finished. They were ill-advised to start with. God told us this is what we should do. No, you're free to make a decision. If it turns out bad, then you'll learn from that. If it turns out good, then praise God. Either way, you made your decision. A lot of people think that the more pious you are, the less freedom you have, and the more you have to have every step you take dictated by God. Go here, don't go here, go here, don't go here, following your hotline from heaven. No. This is about gospel peace. The peace of Christ is peace we have with God. We were his enemies. We were dead sinners. We were going our own way. We didn't care what God said. We didn't care that we had broken his law and faced his wrath against sin. We had no peace. There was no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. We come to Christ and we have peace. That's reconciled enemies. How does that hold sway? Because we are not, in this context, willing to say things, teach things, or make decisions that harm the body of Christ. This is relational, not secret knowledge. And so we want the peace that's the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of being reconciled to God, and the fruit of knowing God and knowing Christ relationally to help us relate. Let me continue my statement. This is how we relate to one another in Christ, not personal inner guidance. If you want to know more about that, the article is CIC issue 98, the problems with personal words from God, subtitle, how people become false prophets to their own selves. So that should be provocative enough. So, in Colossians, in the context, it is God who has made peace. It's not how he gives us these inner impressions, follow this one, not that one. It's having peace with God. Let me quickly quote this. Colossians 1, 20-22. And through him, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace... Through the blood of his cross. How do we have peace? Because God made peace through the blood of his cross. Not because, oh, I feel peace about it. It must be what God wants me to do. That's not the point. I'll tell you this. Whatever it does mean is definitely beneficial for you when you believe it. What it doesn't mean, but you think it means, probably is not going to do you any good. Does that make sense? 
Misinterpreting the Bible is not beneficial to the body of Christ. The peace of God in Christ always is. So, having made peace through the blood of the cross, reconciling things to him, things on earth, in heaven, you were formerly, Paul said, alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you in him holy and blameless beyond reproach. We'll talk about that more next week. But God has saved us, forgiven our sins, made us holy and blameless, and gave us the gift of eternal life and reconciled us to himself. That's peace with God. Now, whether you buy a Ford or a Chevy. All right. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 12, 17. Now, this one is a real kicker. I have probably heard this verse, verse 8, misused more than just about any verse. I mean, there's so many that have been misused. But this one is real doozy when it's misused. Let me read it. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 and 8. What does Paul mean? We're talking about enriched in speech, utterance, wisdom, knowledge, and so on. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 and 8, Holman Christian Standard Bible. A demonstration of the Spirit is given to each person to produce what is beneficial. Stop right there. The demonstration of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in the body of Christ is for each person and it's to produce what's beneficial. Never, It's never to produce awe in the uh, eyes of others about how great some gifted one is, what, how great some preacher is, how great some evangelist is, some, how great some group that's more pious than all of us who have nothing going for us but the grace of God. It's for the benefit of everyone. Whoever God has put in the body, God loves, and he wants to work amongst us and through us to the benefit of every single person. Never to exalt one over another, but to benefit each one. Let's read on. Now he gives a list. To one is given a message of wisdom and to, through the Spirit, and to another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. Now I'm using the Holman Christian Standard Bible because it gets the sense correct. Hold on. The message of wisdom is um, logos, logos of Sophia. It's actually using the genitive. So this message of wisdom would be an articulate utterance of God's wisdom. Now, if you have, excuse me, if you have an articulate utterance of God's wisdom, what are you going to say? What, what, what would that look like? Well, what is God's wisdom? Let's look at 1 Corinthians one thirty to see 
what the wisdom of God is. 1 Corinthians 1.30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became, became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So, Jesus Christ became to us wisdom from God. What would be a message of wisdom? An articulate expression of some of the great implications of knowing Christ, of having salvation, of how God sees things through Scripture. Gospel-centric utterance of wisdom that benefits us. This happens constantly, by the way. It happened in Sunday school, as we shared with each other, as Eric taught us. That's what it looks like. And it's not somebody spontaneously standing up and saying, whatever, that's a word of wisdom. And it could be anything. No, it's gospel-centric, and it's the to the benefit of the flock. And to another, a message of knowledge, a logos of gnosis. Now go back and think of the context of Paul coming through Thessalonica, where he was hated and rejected. Berea, where they were willing to search the scriptures, but the Thessalonians came, started a riot. To Athens, where he confronted the wisdom and knowledge of the Greek world, that was known for that. They had a lot, but it was not from God in the sense of the cross or the gospel, but it was their wisdom and knowledge. Impressive. They really had a lot of ideas. Epicurean philosophers, Stoic philosophers, but they had all their polytheism. They had architecture. They had a beautiful language. They had Many things that are impressive, but it wasn't God's wisdom. So what did Paul preach there? Christ and him crucified and the resurrection and the forgiveness of sins. Then he comes to Corinth. And God said, don't don't be afraid. Be bold. Go on speaking. Because he was rejected mostly at Athens. And keep preaching the same thing. He spent a year and a half there teaching God's wisdom and God's knowledge, which is the cross. And now, you wouldn't believe how this gets abused. Honestly, as we've been doing YouTube videos and helping people get rid of some really bad teaching, it's amazing some of the people that contact me and what they've been taught. I'll just give you one example of the abuse of this message of knowledge. Someone said that they were told that the man of God got a word of knowledge that revealed which sin of their one of their ancestors, unknown to them, that caused her to be cursed. An ancestor you don't know, a sin you never heard about, but it's the reason you're cursed now. Well, I said, how do you know you're cursed now? Well, because I get sick a lot. I, I've lost jobs. My relationships don't go very good. Okay, there's really only one decision to be made. Are you in Christ or not? It's not symptomatic. It's relational. 
Ephesians 1, 3. If you're in Christ, you're blessed. If you're in Christ, you're blessed. Are you poor? Are you in Christ or not? You're blessed. Are you rich? Are you in Christ or not? You're blessed if you are. If you're not, you're cursed. You're healthy, wealthy, popular, powerful, everything anybody could want. You're outside of Christ. You're cursed. So why do you need a full word of knowledge about what sin some ancestor did that you don't even know if he had such an ancestor, and now you're cursed? Why do you need that? What's that got to do with this? Well, I never thought of that. See, the clearer we get our categories, the more beneficial it is to the body of Christ. We find hope. We find comfort. We find that we have a relationship with God and one another and that he cares for us and we love one another and we care for each other. It doesn't matter where we've been. It didn't matter what our ancestors were. It didn't matter whether we had money or we didn't or bad things or good things. None of that matters. We're in Christ. And so I guess you could say I'm giving you a word of knowledge right now. God's judge. But I believe scripture would bear out that the true knowledge of God says, if you're in Christ, you're blessed. That's what it's about. It's not about some secret that may not even be true anyhow. Jesus Christ became to us wisdom from God. So let me make a statement. The message of Sophia, which is the Greek word for wisdom, and gnosis, knowledge, that are given by the Spirit are words that express God's wisdom and the true knowledge of Christ. Earlier in this epistle, Paul corrected false views of wisdom and knowledge that were popular with some of the Corinthians and extolled by teachers who looked to exalt themselves as higher order Christians. We'll get to all that. So you say you have knowledge. Paul, just to give you an example, jot this down. 1 Corinthians 8.2. I'll just give you an example. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, gnosis, he is not yet known as he ought to know. You think you know something that makes you better than everybody else in the church? You don't know what you need to know. He goes on to say, but if you're known by God, it's relational. So I have more information than everybody else. I know secrets you don't know. I know God. Why? Because of what God did through me, through Christ, for me, by his grace. There's an idea about what this range of meaning for knowledge is. True wisdom and knowledge are Christ-centered and concerned the gospel and their shared utterances, meaning a message or a speech that would help us understand more fully our mutual salvation. So that's a little preview of what we're going to do should the Lord carry and I live long enough and I can still preach when we get to chapter 12. So I'll give you a little preview. Now, one last slide. Let's talk about the gospel. Acts 20, 21, and 2 Corinthians 4, 5. I want to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ more fully. Acts 20, 21. 
Paul, on his way back from his missionary journey, goes through Ephesus, gathers a church, and tells what he did. I testified, Paul said, to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There, there we have it. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear ones, it didn't matter to Paul, ultimately, he was comforted by God, that the Athenians mocked him for preaching that. Greeks and Jews mocked Christ when he was dying on the cross. But he just kept preaching it. That's what the Lord appeared to Paul. He's an apostle. Told him to keep preaching that. Repentance towards God. What is that? Admitting that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we that we were dead sinners. That we did what we wanted to do. And we didn't obey God. We sinned. And the right and righteous penalty of sin is death and Adam all die but repentance means turning to God turning from vain idols to serve the living God turning from believing in self to believing in Christ and the gospel turning from trusting in man to trusting in God turning from trusting in riches or religion or whatever it is and trusting in God through Christ alone Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, God, the creator of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, who existed from all eternity with God and as God, who came into our world, was born of a virgin, who lived a sinless life, who did many mighty miracles to prove who he is, who predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. He was crucified. He did shed his blood. He did die. And he was raised on the third day. He appeared to many witness, witnesses. And he bodily ascended into heaven before witnesses, promising that he would return to bring judgment. Salvation for those who trust him and judgment on his enemies. Faith in him. Trusting him. Not the philosophers. Not government. Not culture and society, but him. By the way, that's how we're going to be thankful, if we're ever going to be. We're thankful for what God did for us in Christ. It's harder for the world to take that away. I watched the news this morning, and frankly, there's not a whole lot to be thankful for. There's a lot of fear, a lot of sorrow, a lot of violence, Lies, threats, unrest. Where do we find hope, freedom, justice? It's so bad. It's so bad. But I can't allow the news to strip from me the peace of God that is in Christ Jesus and thankfulness for what he has done. It's all part of God's providence. I have no idea what's going to happen other than God will come and judge the quick and the dead, as they say in the old English. 
So that's the gospel, to repent and believe on Jesus Christ. Trust him. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. Notice what Paul said. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. People don't need to come to church to hear about ourselves. We come to hear about Christ. Who he is, what he did, why we need him, what he expects of us. It's very tempting to try to find status in this world, but it's worthless. The world doesn't have anything to offer that we really need. We need forgiveness of sins. So the true work of the Spirit that gives utterance, lagos, is that work of the Spirit that gives us faith, confidence, and articulation to preach Christ however that might be. That's the gospel. That's the word of knowledge. That's the word of wisdom. That's the Sophia of God and the gnosis and the enrichment and all these things that Paul's talking about. So I hope this preview of where we're going in Corinthians will give us uh, some excitement about going forward and learning this great book. And I also thank God that I didn't try to preach this until I got older. Frankly, I don't know that I understood it. I, I just I didn't I couldn't say what some of these things meant. And there's things I won't know now, and I'll just tell you. If I don't know, I don't know. But I think this one makes sense. The word of wisdom and knowledge is Christ and the gospel and what God has done to enrich us by grace. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for the fellowship we have with you and one another. Thank you for the peace that we have as your gift of salvation. And Lord, give us thankful hearts that we keep praying, trusting you, thanking you, no matter what happens in the world around us. And I pray for many we know who are sick, some at the end of life, some hanging, their lives hanging in the balance, some distressed in various ways. May, may your, your grace and comfort and mercy and power come into their lives and continue to uphold them. And help us to be motivated, Lord, to take care of each other. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.